All right, good morning. If it feels like we're in a little bit uh, different rhythm, we are. And uh, we're just trying to uh, do something a little bit different this morning. So uh, appreciate your flexibility and maybe the out of rhythmness will be a benefit for us this morning. I want to pray again. God, we are here and you are here. You were here before we got here. You preceded us. You have always preceded us in a variety of ways. And so we're grateful for the opportunity to catch up with you and to listen and pay attention. Help us to do that as we open your word together. Give us ears that are good to hear and hearts that are able to receive that which you would plant within us. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words stray or deviate in any way from your word, may they be quickly forgotten. Amen. So five weeks ago, we read in the Old Testament about the Jewish people's hope and expectation of a Messiah, a Christ, an anointed one who would come sent by God to rescue them, to deliver them, to reestablish David's throne, and to sit on it, to reign in righteousness, to carry out justice, and particularly for the poor, to deal with people's sin, and to free those in various forms of bondage. And then we read in the scriptures about how people were to prepare for the coming of this Messiah, Christ, who we understand to be Jesus, and about the faith and the faithfulness of Zechariah and Elizabeth and Joseph and Mary, and then about an infant king. Last Sunday morning, Lois led us into a deeper look in Matthew's gospel at Joseph and Mary's fleeing with their tiny child, Jesus, to Egypt, and then... When it was safe, they returned to Nazareth, where Jesus would grow up. After that, Matthew tells us in his gospel about John the Baptist actually preparing the way for Jesus, and then about the baptism of Jesus, and then about Jesus' testing or his temptation at the hands of the devil in the wilderness. And then Matthew tells his readers three things, that Jesus began to preach, though Matthew doesn't tell us what Jesus preached, that Jesus called his first disciples to himself, and then that Jesus healed all sorts of people of all sorts of maladies, of paralysis, of demons, of pains, of diseases, and so on. And then in Matthew's gospel, we get to chapter five. Familiar words, which we read now. Listen closely, this is God's word. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, 
and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Blessed, 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 blessed. These seemingly poetic words of Jesus are often understood to mean a person will be blessed if, if he or she exhibits poverty of spirit, seeks to be poor in spirit, tries to be poor in spirit. A person will be blessed by God if she mourns and weeps and cries and grieves. A person will be blessed if he behaves meekly, if he chooses meekness, submissiveness, timidity, docility, weakness. But is that what Jesus was really saying is the question this morning. That his disciples, that those who he had called to learn from him and join his school, those who he intended to train to be ambassadors and agents and advocates and catalysts of and for God's kingdom, should aim for poverty, emptiness, sadness, weakness? Probably not. Probably not. Instead, what Jesus may have been, maybe more likely, have been saying was, because the kingdom or the reign or the rule of God has come near because of Jesus, in Jesus, and was close because Jesus was close and was advancing in Jesus, all these sorts of people were blessed already. They would be blessed. They were blessed even these sorts of people, people who were spiritually bankrupt, in other words, poor in spirit, what else can it mean? People who had no spiritual pedigree or outward claims to any great spirituality, people who didn't have spiritual credentials, People who didn't behave particularly spiritually, people who didn't talk spiritual, walk spiritual, think spiritual, boast spiritual. Or in Luke's plain and simple version, blessed are those who are simply poor, financially bankrupt, who can't pay their bills, whose credit is the pits, who's, who live paycheck to paycheck, paycheck to paycheck, whose kids are hungry whose homes are falling apart or who may live on the street, blessed are they? Question mark to us, no question mark in the scriptures. They are blessed, Jesus says. And blessed are those who mourn, who are heartbroken, who have just lost a loved one, whose spouse has walked out on them, whose kid has turned to drugs or lies or the wrong crowd. Blessed are the weak, the submissive, the spineless, the milquetoast people, question mark. Blessed are those who are yearn for things to be right in the world and in their lives because they haven't experienced such. Because right and as things should be have not been their experience. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are those who were thought to be cowards, weak, unable or unwilling to get back at people. Show them who's boss, demand that others pay off every cent of their debt. 
Blessed are the merciful. Pure in heart people lacked craftiness. Craftiness is a good skill to have in life and in the world. Essential in that era and sometimes in this one as well. Pure in heart people lacked craftiness. And then there were the peacemakers who were too weak to fight and so they tried to mediate or live in the middle, torn between two sides. And then blessed are the persecuted and the insulted. Blessed are the persecuted, blessed are the insulted. How? How is that blessed? In what way? Where is the blessing in these and all of these things? And Jesus' answer is, it is near. But it is not as one would think, not as one would expect, not how people normally thought then or today think. But Jesus declared that people like these were blessed and could be happy, would be happy, joyful, well, whole. Not because of who they were or how they were or what they had done or achieved or accomplished or become because they hadn't done or achieved or accomplished or become much. They weren't. But because... God had come to them in Jesus because God had come to them as Jesus. And with him, God's kingdom, God's presence, God's power, God's love, God's goodness, God's peace, God's hope, and God's joy right where they were and just as they were. Which brings us this morning to this table behind me originally called the Lord's Supper, later by some called the Eucharist, later by others called communion. Christians have called it a sacrament, which means it's a holy mystery that not only do we not understand, but which we also cannot fully understand, but which we nevertheless embrace in faith and experience, understanding it to be a means through which we meet God, a means through which God's grace is given or extended to us, not only made visible, but also imputed, a means through which God's grace also is proclaimed publicly. And among the truths of God, which are in this meal, this sacrament, proclaimed publicly are these and this. To this table and to fellowship with him and even to some sort of mystical union with him, In love, Jesus invites graciously people who are poor in spirit. People who are poor in physical and worldly resources. People who lack. People who are grieving or experiencing sadness. People who up to this point in life have gotten what feels like the short end of the stick. People who are tired, people who have been lazy, people who have been lax, people who have failed in their responsibilities, in their grades, their jobs, their relationships, their assessments by others, their assessments of themselves. And the lyrics of an obscure song sung by an even more obscure band that we used to sing with the youth group many, many years ago by a band called the Lost Dogs. Politicians, morticians, Philistines, homophobes, skinheads, deadheads, tax collectors, tax evaders, street kids, alcoholics, workaholics, 
wise guys, dimwits, blue collars, white collars, warmongers, peaceniks, breathe deep the breath of God. Suicidals, rock idols, shut-ins, dropouts, friendless, homeless, penniness, and depressed, presidents, residents, foreigners, and aliens, dissidents, feminists, xenophobes, and chauvinists, breathe deep the breath of God. Gays and lesbians, demagogues and thespians, the disabled preachers, doctors and teachers, meat eaters, wife beaters, judges and juries, long hairs, no hairs, everybody everywhere, breathe deep. Breathe deep the breath of God. And all of that is possible for all of those people and us because we've been invited I'm invited into his kingdom, into his life, into the life, not because of who we are or what we've done or what we've achieved or what people think about us and notwithstanding the sins we've committed, the lies we've spoken, the mean things we've thought, the judgment we've passed, the bitterness we've clung to, the love we've withheld, Jesus still says to all of them, and all of us come. And so you probably hopefully already know, but I'll say it nonetheless and you can say it with me. We come to this table not because we are good, but because God is good. We come to this table not because we're righteous, but because God is righteous. We come to this table not because we have loved God, but because God has loved us. We come to this table not because we've got it all together, but because precisely we don't have it all together, because we don't have all the answers. And to be able to acknowledge this is actually freeing. To be able to acknowledge our dependence on another is actually freeing when the other is the God of the universe, who in Jesus sent his one and only son into the world, not in order to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be rescued scooped up, held tightly, held securely, saved. And that, my friends, the theologians call grace. The apostle Paul called grace, God's grace, the grace of God's grace. With nothing but the acknowledgement that our own, that on our own we are dead in our sin and have no hope, we come to the table where we remember and where we sit with a servant king who gave his life in order that we might have life in his name forever and today, right now. Let's pray. We have no basis for our coming other than your invitation. We have no qualities or achievements that get us to this place other than your sending Jesus, born in Bethlehem, laid in a manger, Messiah, King.
And so we ask, God, that you would, through this table and through this meal that we sit at, as your disciples have done for 2,000 years, feed us, teach us, nourish us, open our eyes. Continue to reconcile us to yourself. Heal us. Make us new. In the name of Jesus, amen. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said to his disciples, this is my body that's broken for you. Do this, eat this, in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took a cup, and he said, this cup is a new covenant. We don't have a lot of covenants. They had a lot of covenants. Big ones and little ones. This is a new one. Jesus said, in my blood for the forgiveness of your sins. And the Apostle Paul tells us that whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup in this way together, we proclaim the Lord's death, his atoning death, his saving death, his rescuing death, his redeeming and healing and unifying death that we might have life until he comes again. And so he does. Thanks be to God. In just a moment, you'll be invited forward after the servers uh, come up. Uh, down the center aisle, you will be invited to first grab a napkin in those little holders on the first pew and come to servers in the middle who will tear off a piece of bread with recently sanitized hands and place it on your napkin and then go to the next station to the outside and receive a cup that has already been poured. If you prefer the gluten-free forms that are already prepackaged, those are in the corner and you can continue to those. And then return to your seats through the side aisles. And when you are there, remove your mask, uh, eat and drink in the name and in the way of Jesus. All things are ready. Please come. And now there's more. Because God has loved us before we loved him, we can confess our sin to him and know that he is faithful and just and forgives all sin and cleanses from unrighteousness. The common, historically, and in my experience growing up, and sometimes here, liturgy or order of worship was always to confess one's sin and then, and only then, come forward and celebrate communion. But doing it in the opposite order may not be so bad and reminds us of a few things. That long before we knew to confess our sin, God came to us with forgiveness. There's an upside downness to God's ways. We don't have to wonder about God's mercy. He initiated. We don't have to worry, we don't have to fear uncertainty or judgment or condemnation because God has loved us and the whole world in Christ Jesus and shown us the full extent of his love through Jesus' death on a cross, which is how we can trust him, which is how we know that we have value. We know that we can be honest about who we are and who we aren't because God initiated 
because we did not have to come begging and pleading, because God initiated, because he declared, you are blessed. Blessed are you, even you, even you, even you. And there's more. The experience of God's love and God's faithfulness and God's unmerited favor frees us. It actually frees us. Go ahead and try this with me real quick. Now, were you all doing that at home? If not, let's try again. The experience of God's initiating love and God's faithfulness and God's unmerited favor, free, we're sometimes suspicious about free stuff in our world, free trial. Oh, don't do it. But God's love frees us to love. It frees us to live. It frees us, as Jesus said, to leave. Love, live, leave father and mother and sister and brother and follow Jesus. And not because we have to, which is the story that spins in some of our heads and some of our minds and in some of our hearts. Not because we have to, but because we get to. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Romans, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were in the midst of what the world and we ourselves thought and seemed to be an unblessed life, Christ died for us. And that is the blessed. Apart from anything Zechariah or Elizabeth or Mary did, God blessed them. Apart from any merit of their own, God blessed a group of shepherds on a starry night. Apart from any goodness of their own, Jesus declared to a handful of would-be students and a random gathering of Palestinian Jews around Nazareth that they and people like them unexpectedly were already blessed because God had come near, because God was for them despite their insufficiencies, their inadequacies, their inadequacies, their lack of credentials, their inability to prove themselves. The creator of the universe who knit them together in their mother's wombs was crazy about them and for them. And such love, grace, favor, kindness tends to have a certain kind of effect on people when they really experience it. And now I want to say this, Christianity or following Jesus is not about behavioral modification. It is not, as is put forward in some quarters, a behavioral modification program. It's not about being good as much as it is about being loved, about being reconciled, being immersed in God's grace, and then being transformed, being made new, being invited into God's kingdom, and living in the kingdom of God, which Gladys talked about to and with the children. Sure, there is somewhere a facet of be good, do good in Christianity. 
But that is not in order to be loved, but rather because a person is loved. It is not in order to be saved, but it is because a person has been saved, is saved. It is not in order to be blessed, but because a person already is blessed. Even those who may not seem to be blessed by the world's way of grading or, de- or evaluating or determining blessed. And a person's being loved apart from what she does or what she's done tends to have an effect on a person when a, true, a person truly understands, appreciates, and embraces the blessedness of God's grace that has been imputed to a person regardless of one's outward circumstances or inward condition. In other words, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those in spiritual poverty. Blessed are those who are poor, straight up. Blessed are those who are hungry. Blessed are those who are grieving and persecuted and slandered. Gratitude, joy, a reciprocal love, and a desire to honor the one who is blessed wells up in such a person, even such people, Jesus says. The natural response of one who has been so blessed is to always magnify the one who blesses. And if that desire is not there, that person may have not yet experienced that of which we speak. But if a person is self-aware enough to know that Jesus is her only hope in this life and the life to come, her only hope to rescue her from that which destroys, her only hope for a life that's infused with God's spirit, a life that is characterized by a quality that the scriptures call eternal, If a person is so aware of that, is aware of that, that God coming to them, then their only response and their always response will be to the source and to the one responsible for this joy and gratitude. As Jesus' followers seemed at times to have almost had no choice in doing, they fell down and worshipped him. They knelt before him and praised him. Therefore, worship is not so much a mandate and certainly not a burden, but rather a joyful and natural response of a people upon whom the blessings of God have come apart from themselves, which is us. And this so-called worship is not just a Sunday morning thing. It cannot be. It cannot be. Many of you know the opening line and declaration of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which declares the chief end of man or humanity or people, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, to enjoy that forever, to enjoy God and to enjoy glorifying him. That's humanity's chief end, goal, purpose, reality. That's what it's all about, and that is the natural response of the one who understands and has experienced blessedness in him, regardless of one's outward circumstances, regardless of what the world says. Jesus has come near. To glorify God is to reflect God's glory, to point to God in God's glory, to embody God's purposes, to open up one's life so that God's life may be manifest in one and through one. Again, as the Apostle Paul wrote to the Romans, in view of God's mercy, in other words, his undeserved blessings, offer your whole self to God in worship. 
and view of God's declaration, and not just his declaration, but his bringing about blessedness in each of our lives. The natural and compelling response is to worship God with all of who we are. And so we launch out on a new year in uncertain circumstances. I'll say that again. I'll try uncertain circumstances. As we do, let us see and affirm God's grace in our lives and in the world in the midst of the uncertainty. God's blessings because Jesus' king has come and because King Jesus reigns and with his kingdom comes goodness, all we need, and peace. And therefore, let us follow the Lord Jesus, not just because we have to, but because we get to. And because we can trust that when he says you are blessed, you will be blessed, you are, you have been, and you will. Because Jesus has come near to you, that he will. Yes, there is a, an element of striving in that. There is in the scriptures. And that striving, that effort is not opposed to grace, but rather partners with it. And so having seen, having known, having been told, having been promised that God blesses people simply because that's who God is and God wills to bless regardless of what the world says, that our natural response is to live in that, see that, enjoy that, appreciate that, and then to almost spontaneously love, leave, follow Jesus. As we've talked over the months about our five values, to love all people unconditionally, serve our neighbors generously, advance God's purposes globally, pour into the next generation intentionally, and cultivate spiritual growth continuously. The one of those that people have continually said to me or I've heard said is by far the hardest for them is to love all people unconditionally. But if we understand that we first have been loved unconditionally, that God's blessings have first come to us, we are freed up to love other people unconditionally. If we think that God loved and loves us because of some merit of our own, some goodness of our own, some work of our own, then we will always love or seek or try to love other people in that way and according to their goodness and their merit and their deservingness. But the person who understands that blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the poor because Jesus has come near, blessed are those who mourn and are sad, blessed who are hungering for righteousness because they just haven't gotten things right in their life or haven't been treated rightly. That there is for them a way in Jesus that is upside down. A kingdom that works differently than the world works. And to that kingdom we are invited. And so I would say in this new year, live first in an awareness of the blessedness of God. And then out of that, give. We skipped over our little moment for offering. Give in the box, give online, give however, give to whomever, give to whatever, give. Serve, bless, 
pour out your life because you already are loved. Not because you have to, not because of a burden or a duty or guilt or an expectation, but because you get to, and in getting to, we get to live into the life to which God has called us. And the promise so closely related in Greek to that word blessed is the word joy. And joy will be ours and worship will be ours and gladness will be exhibited by the kingdom of God and the people of God, not because they were told to, but because they have experienced love, unmerited favor and blessing already. As you look out at your new year, maybe you've had some New Year's resolutions that you've thought about, pondered, considered. Maybe you still are. Maybe you will. Maybe you can. In those things, find the freedom of God's blessing. Find the freedom of a God who initiates, who has initiated, who has loved and who has graced you apart from whatever stuff you've done, apart from who you are. And in that freedom, find the joyful life of a loving kingdom into which we are invited. Let us pray.